Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Boy, Reynolds was right. You, you are looking quite spectacular this morning. All right, let's get to it. Romans chapter 3. If you have a Bible, open it or turn it on or whatever type of way you have with the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take the Bible that's in the chair in front of you and make that your own. Keep it. Let it be our gift to you. In most of those Bibles, you can find Romans chapter 3 on page 941. Now, we've got some newer Bibles that aren't exactly the same type print as the older Bibles, uh, and I'm not sure what page that is on. So, Romans chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. We've been going through the first 12 chapters of Genesis. We finished that last week. We're going to look at what theologians have called the most important paragraph ever written today. Next week, Will Hawk will be preaching a standalone message, very likely on Luke chapter 24, the post-resurrection uh, encounter of Jesus with some disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then in May, we're going to work through the New Testament letter of Titus. But for this morning, we'll be looking at, as I said, what is very likely the most important paragraph ever written. So this past Wednesday, I believe it was, in the first section of the New York Times, there was an article about the former mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg, and his uh, post-mayor life activities and political efforts to, uh, with his own money, he's a billionaire, try and push back against the political activism of the NRA, the National Rifle Association. Now, I, I thought about not even telling you the substance of the article because I know some of you, you just, I mean, the first rule in public speaking is know your audience and to know that some guy in New York is mounting a campaign to sort of squash the NRA is going to junk you up so much you're not going to be able to pay attention. But please, I beg you, just, just to sort of set the context for the article, that was this personal piece on... Mayor Bloomberg and his efforts, his political efforts for his platform or whatever, to do something that he thought was worthy. Listen to the last two paragraphs of this piece about Mr. Bloomberg. Mr. Bloomberg was introspective as he spoke and seemed both restless and wistful. When he sat down for the interview, it was a few days before his 50th college reunion. His mortality has started dawning on him at 72. And he admitted he was a bit taken aback by how many of his former classmates had been appearing in the in-memoriam pages of his school newsletter. But if he senses that he may not have as much time left as he would like, he has little doubt about what would await him at a judgment day. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation he said with a grin, quote, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight 
in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. I don't know whether that was partly tongue-in-cheek or not, but I do think that the philosophy that Mr. Mr. Bloomberg states there about his own worthiness to meet his maker is the de facto reasoning of most of the world. What does the Bible say about what it takes to stand before a holy God? Well, we turn our attention to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Before I read and pray, let me give you the outline. If you're a visitor here today, um, I'm one of the pastors here. My name's Brad. I, I do most of the preaching. And in the past nine years that we've been a church, we celebrated our ninth anniversary of a church as a church this past week, I have made this group of people an outline-dependent group. I have found that if I don't just give them kind of a framework of where, I go, where I'm going, midway through they start to get a little antsy. So here's the outline for this paragraph. We're going to look at just three things. The problem, the solution, and the consequences. The problem, the solution, and the consequences. I'm going to say it one more time, and then we're going to take that off. We're not going to come back to it, but I figure it's simple enough for you to get it. The problem, the solution, and the consequences. Let's read now. Listen as I read the most important paragraph ever written. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, writes these words. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand these words. Father, thank you for your indescribable kindness to us. Thank you that we can gather here this morning in freedom, not just politically, but thank you that we can gather in freedom spiritually. And we can do that because there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Because as we have read and sung and prayed, Jesus is risen indeed. Lord, for the Christians in this room, I pray, God, that you would stir our affections for Jesus and that we would see afresh the beautiful, stunning good news of the gospel. 
and that it would warm our hearts, that it would produce in us humility, boldness, and worship. And Father, for my friends that are here this morning who are not yet trusting in Christ, Lord, I'm not pleading with them and their own abilities. I'm pleading with you that you in your grace and kindness and in your mercy that you might give them the very thing that you demand from them which is faith in Christ alone. Lord, would you do this for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, and for the salvation of any unbelievers in this room. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. First, the problem, which is an argument that Paul has been laying out before this important paragraph in midway through Romans chapter 3. The problem of the Bible, the problem of the universe, is the fallenness of mankind and the holiness of God. It is a sort of dilemma a kind of riddle that works its way through the whole Old Testament. And we've been going through the book of Genesis, and we just ended last week on Genesis chapter 12, where God promises to bless a people, to, to pour out his love, to set his affection on a man and a family that would come through that man to, to bless and redeem, and to make for himself a people. But then, if we continue to read through the rest of the Old Testament, We see this people, and in fact all of mankind, really falling over themselves and tripping over this sin nature that was ingrained in us when our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell in the garden and rebelled against God. And this is the argument of the Apostle Paul in the first few chapters before Romans chapter 3 that we just read. He starts off in Romans 1 talking about how all people... Jews and Gentiles. And by the way, everybody in this room is either a Jew or a Gentile. I suspect that you are, most of you, probably Gentiles, but everybody in this room. So when the Bible is talking about Jews and Gentiles, it's talking about everybody. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is making this argument that even the Gentiles, people scattered all across the earth, have a certain a revelation of God, this natural law of creation that should let them see God and push them towards worshiping Him. But all of us have rebelled against God and worshiped the created things instead of the Creator. And then he sets his sights on, on the Jews, the Old Testament family that he made through this one man who he gave a law to, the Old Testament law. And he says to them that you've even broken not just my natural law, but my specific written law. And so the argument of Romans chapter 1 and 2 in the beginning of Romans chapter 3 that he sums up in the text we read is that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now let's stop there and just kind of pause and define kind of what sin is because I think some of us might have a a sort of modern day 21st century civilized man objection, right? We think, oh, come on, is is really just even just an average guy out there, is he also a sinner, a rebel against God? Friends, I think the biblical answer to that clearly is yes, that all human morality, and I put that in quotes, all human relative goodness is really at its core, when it's separated and does not acknowledge God as its source, is really at its base just idolatry. An illustration that we use often here is, think of a, 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 a good, in air quotes, a good 
young man that was raised by a family, and they gave him every advantage, and they gave him a house and shelter and, and, and food and education, and he takes that blessing from his parents, and he, he does good with it, and he gets a good education, and then he gets a, a good job, and he starts to do good deeds. But imagine that son never acknowledging or thanking, in fact, refusing the phone calls of his mom. We wouldn't say that that guy is good, we would say that he is an ungrateful mm, that needs to call his mom, right? And I'm a bit convicted by this because my mom is actually here today, and, and I kind of feel like maybe I should call her more. But aside from that, do you see that human goodness really isn't goodness when it's detached from the source of all goodness, which is God, our creator. And in fact, when human goodness doesn't acknowledge the fountain, the headwaters of goodness, it is in, really at its core idolatry and rebellion against our God. And so all mankind, even in his seeming social goodness, apart from God, is fallen and rebellious. Paul, in his theology in the New Testament of sin sums it up this way in, Roman, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. He says that all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're spiritually dead before Christ rescues us. And then in Romans chapter 8 verses 7 and 8, he makes this all-important statement about the ability of man in his natural state to do anything good Towards God, and he says in Romans 8, 7 and 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh, and that is Paul's phrase for a person that is not trusting in Christ, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So our rebellion has left us totally and completely unable to make ourselves right with God. And so, friends, I want you to see the dilemma before we move on to the solution, which is this paragraph that we read. The dilemma is, is that we have a God in the Old Testament who says to Abraham and then says continually through his people that he will make a people for himself and he will make them holy. But yet we have a people who are woefully unable to make themselves holy. So there's this verse in Exodus. I think it's in chapter 34. It's one of the keys to the whole Bible where it says that God will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty. So in the Old Testament, leading up to Jesus coming as a man, we have this great dilemma, this great problem. God has promised to save and mankind is completely unable to save himself so what is the solution going to be and that is this beautiful paragraph the solution that we read so let's work back through it verse 21 but now martin luther the great protestant reformer said of these two words in verse 21 he said it is the chief point the very central place of the whole epistle of romans and of the whole 
Bible, Martin Luther sees these words as the fulcrum, the tipping point upon which the whole message of the Bible turns. He says, but now the righteousness righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So he's telling us here, Paul, that this Old Testament, in his shorthand, that's what he means when he says the law and the prophets. He's talking about the Mosaic law that was given through Moses and all of the Old Testament prophets who spoke God's people and their messages became the Old Testament books. He says all of this Old Testament is bearing witness to this righteousness of God. How God is going to make his people right. How he's going to take a people who cannot make themselves right and make them right with him through his work. So there's three clear themes in the Old Testament. The holiness and goodness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the promise of God to save. And so when you're reading the Old Testament, and it gets kind of confusing, and you're reading these strange dietary laws, and these strange laws about, you know, what you can wear and not wear. In fact, there's this law about how you can't mix two types of fabrics, and you can't eat bacon, I mean, come on, praise God for living after the new covenant. And there's these commands, and there's these warnings, and at times there's these severe punishments of God. What is God doing? Is God just sort of this mean, wrathful, grumpy grandpa, and now everything kind of changes in the New Testament? No, in the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, are pointing out and showing and demonstrating the holiness of a God who has said, you will live according to my terms, and the inability of a people to live up to God's terms. And God gives his people this law, and when you're reading these Old Testament laws that seem to be, you know, you're just in the weeds, and you're not understanding what's going on, I want you to think of the Old Testament, specifically the law, as in these, in these three ways. Think of it kind of like a tutor, like a guardian, that is taking us by the hand and showing us three things. This Old Testament, all of it, specifically the law of God, is showing us three things. It's showing us what is right, showing us how we should live, showing God's holiness, showing us what is right. Secondly, it's showing us what is wrong, what we should avoid, the sins that we should not commit. But ultimately, friends, the Old Testament law is showing us thirdly what is needed. That we need a holiness. We need a righteousness. We need somebody outside of ourselves to obey this law for us because we can't do it. In fact, we could maybe sum up one of the messages of the Old Testament in this phrase. We can't do it. God rescues his people and they rebel again. He rescues them and they rebel again. He rescues them and they rebel again. It's like a song on your iPad that's bad that's caught on repeat. Over and over, God pours out grace, rebellion. Pours out grace, rebellion. And one of the The screaming cries of the Old Testament is that we can't save ourselves. We can't live the way the creator God has called us to live. We need somebody outside of ourselves. That's the message of the law, and that's the message of the Old Testament, and that's the message of this paragraph, and it's the message of the gospel, and it's the reason Jesus came, to do what we could not do. 
And that's verse 22. Let's keep reading. The righteousness of God that this law and prophets were pointing to, now this righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned. So he's saying the Jew, the privileged people of God, and the Gentile, all have sinned. So the uh, person who's never darkened the door of a church, who grew up in a terrible spiritual situation, was born by nature and by choice a sinner. And the good little church kid, whose dad is a deacon, whose grandmother paid, plays the piano, whose great-grandfather laid the foundation for the church building, who comes from a long line of Christians by nature, like every other person, and by choice is a sinner, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, verse 25, this important sentence, whom God put forward as a propitiation, we'll we'll define that word in a moment, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So here is the answer to how God is going to fulfill his promise because we are completely unable. Remember the dilemma. God is holy and to approach God we must be holy But we cannot approach God because we cannot live up to the standards of his holiness. And now because all have sinned and all of us are fallen short of the glory of God, in fact is worse than us just sinning, we are now dead in our trespasses and sins. And as a response to that, God now through Jesus Christ comes and is born as a humble baby in a manger. And Jesus, fully God and fully man, now takes on flesh and lives the life in complete obedience to the law that every Jew and every Gentile and all of us have all failed in living up to and lives a perfect, obedient life. And then this obedient, perfect, sinless God-man, it says that God the Father then puts him forward. God puts the Son forward to be the propitiation. What's that fancy word mean? It means that Jesus is the wrath-absorbing, punishment-extinguishing sacrifice who bears the weight of the sin of all those that would ever turn and trust in him and extinguishes it forever and ever. And then rises again in victory vindicating his holiness, vindicating his righteousness, rises again and defeats death and the grave through his resurrection. So God solves the dilemma by putting forward God the Son, who is fully man, fully God, to bear the weight, bear the punishment, living the perfect life that none of us could live and the punishment that none of us could bear. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. And not only does His work absorb our sins, it turns it into gracious favor and love. So there's the answer to the dilemma. God has satisfied His holiness not by giving people a bunch of rules that a special group of people could live up to, but by coming Himself, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, living the life that we could not live, bearing the punishment that we could not bear, and defeating it by rising again. And friends, do you realize that's the fulcrum? That's the most important point of what it means to be a Christian? It's the most important point of the Bible? It's the most important point of the universe that Jesus died and that Jesus rose again. And because he has defeated death and sin on the cross, now we too, if we look to him, can be saved. And now here is this all-important condition about how this salvation is received. It says in verse 24 that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Notice this last phrase, to be received by faith. So this gift, this solution doesn't apply to everybody. It only applies to those who, by faith, look to Christ and trust and receive His righteousness and have their sins extinguished by His work on the cross. But I want you to see this. This is all important. Faith, even the faith that we exercise to trust in Jesus, is not a work that we bring to the table. It's a gift given to us by God's grace. So friends... The the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel is not that God has done 99% of it and you need to bring your little 1% and activate the salvation that is yours. No, friends, that's, that's not it. The message of salvation is not that God helps those who help themselves. That's a lie. The message of the gospel is that God helps those who cannot help themselves and he gives them the very thing that they, that he requires of them. Now let me bring in a couple of pinch hitters to help me with this concept because I realize it's difficult. One is this man named... And all the Presbyterians are going to just clap secretly because they love this guy. He was a very important cat, really important dude. Uh, I recommend you read anything that he's written. Early 1900s, he was one of the stalwarts of just faithful American Christianity and really warded off a lot of the liberalism in in that day. His name is J. J Gresham Machen, very important figure. All you Presbyterians, clap. Go ahead. I know you, you want to do it. There you go. Thank you. (laughs) Listen to what Machen says in his book, What is Faith? Here's this beautiful quote. Got it up on the screen. Faith means not doing something, but receiving something. It means not the earning of a reward, but the acceptance of a gift. 
A man can never be said to obtain a thing for himself if he obtains it by faith. Indeed, to say that he obtains it by faith is only another way of saying that he does not obtain it for himself, but permits another to obtain it for him. Faith, in other words, is not active but passive. And to say that we are saved by faith is to say that we do not save ourselves, but are saved only by the one in whom our faith is reposed. Now listen to this last sentence, so important. The faith of a man presupposes the sovereign grace of God. Friends, this is why the gospel is such spectacular news. The gospel, good news, is not, all right, Johnny and Susie, God's up there, he's holy, and he's mad at your sin. Now, if you will just do better, and if you will reach down inside, and if you will cue up the Whitney Houston soundtrack and find the greatest love of all within you, right? And you will muster up faith, And if you're good, then God will accept you. Friends, did you hear what we said in Ephesians 2 and Romans 8? We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We cannot submit to God. Dead people can't have faith. And this is why the gospel is such good news is that when God moves upon a dead person's heart to save them, listen to this, he gives them the very thing that he requires of them. (laughs) Friends, it's so good. So the, the, the response to the gospel is not look within and gin up and muster up willpower. It's look outside of yourself to the God who provides it all. Another pinch hitter. And you knew I couldn't get through an Easter Sunday. Come on. Without reading from our favorite dead British dude. Charles H. Spurgeon. Who, by the way, at the conference we were at a couple weeks ago in Louisville, Kentucky, some seminary that was putting out a booth there had one of Spurgeon's desks from his old house in London back in the 1800s there. And like word was going on, like you can't touch it, you know. And just to prove that sin nature still to some degree lingers in me, (laughs) that I am still being sanctified. I just had to touch, man. Yeah. That's where Chuck's at, right there. (laughs) Listen to Spurgeon's words about faith. Because here's the deal, friends. I don't want you to... See, we are not saved by the strength of our faith. That's not the message of the gospel. We are saved by the object of our faith. So don't hear from this, oh, I need to have faith. I feel weak. I don't have enough faith. Friends, you are in prime position to receive the great gift of God. Listen to Spurgeon in the sermon he preached called By Grace Through Faith. These are beautiful words. See then, dear friend, that the weakness of your faith will not destroy you. A trembling hand may receive a golden gift. 
the Lord's salvation can come to us though we have only faith as a grain of mustard seed. The power lies in the grace of God and not in your faith. Great messages can be sent along slender wires and the peace-giving witness of the Holy Spirit can reach the heart by means of a thread-like faith which seems almost unable to sustain its own weight. Think more of him to whom you look than of the look itself. You must look away even from your own looking and see nothing but Jesus and the grace of God revealed in him. And friends, even that slender, weak wire that you have in you, even that was given to you by God. So let me pause here. Friend, are you consciously knowing yourself not to be trusting in Christ? And right now, is your heart being warmed? Is there just this little glimmer of expectation that maybe this message is for me? Maybe this news is for me? Maybe once and for all, I can be made right with God. How do I do it? Friends, even the warming, even the oxygen of the Holy Spirit, even the small little beating that you feel in your heart right now, I believe is evidence that God is giving you the very thing that he requires not because he looked on you and you were good but because he looked on Jesus and he was good do you see that friends and so what do you do with that tiny little bit that little that little that little spark that God is putting inside of you you look to Jesus and trust in him and you are saved not because you are strong but because he is strong friends that is gloriously good news So do you see the the solution to the dilemma? God has done it all. He has solved the dilemma of the gap of his holiness and our inability by giving his people eyes to see and a heart to believe and ears to hear this glorious good news that Jesus lived a perfect life That he died a wrath-absorbing, substitutionary death. And that he rose again in victory over sin and death and all of its consequences. And now commands all people to look away from themselves and look to Jesus. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. To trust in Christ alone for your right standing with a holy God. Even as we sang this morning. So now we end with the consequences. What are some implications, very briefly, of being justified, being redeemed by trusting in Christ? One, we have now peace with God. Paul writes later in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified, since we've been made righteous, is what that means, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, do you realize that's your greatest need? Not to get some advancement or seven tips on how to have a better this or that. Do you realize that the greatest need of every human being is to have peace with a holy and righteous creator who we will all stand before someday? The implications of Christ's work on the cross and our looking to him is that we now are right for eternity with God. 
He continues another consequence of, of being justified because of what Christ has done. And our look to him is Romans 8, 1. That we therefore ha- are, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the wrath, the holiness, the justice, the punishment of God that is barreling down on every person who's outside of Christ has been absorbed and satisfied and extinguished by Jesus. And there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Another consequence of Jesus' work on the cross and our looking and trusting to him is that we are now free from fear and free to pursue joy. Like we're free to love others. Friends, I just think about all of the energy I've spent in my life trying to justify myself. And, and, and even after having been a Christian now for some times, I think I still do that. I mean, I know I still do. And think about all the energy it takes to, to justify yourself and how being justified by God frees you. It's amazing how free we are to serve others when we are not driven by need. Another consequence of being justified by Jesus and our look to him is that we are free now to give our lives away to be on mission. So friends, the good news of the gospel, don't stop here. The good news of the gospel is not just merely that this is what Jesus has done on the cross. You must confess and believe this and look to him and be saved. And then like that's a period for a lot of people in the Christian life. No, no. This is what the reformers said about this faith that God gives us. That, that when we exercise it, we are saved. The, the reformer says that we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone. The faith that saves us is alone. In other words, it's not accompanied by any of our good works. But true saving faith will be followed by a response of a life lived for the glory of God. And so a consequence of believing this message, of trusting in this message, of looking to Jesus, of getting this sovereign grace gift of God is that we are now free to give our lives away, to reject the broken counterfeits of pleasures that we thought would satisfy us but ultimately disappoint us. And now we are free to obey in ever-increasing measure the law and goodness and beauty of God. And we are free to give our lives away. We are free, like the young couple from this church that we prayed for this morning, to give our lives away to a people group on the other side of the world. We are free to plant churches in this city like David and Marie Baum are going to do, Lord willing, in the near future. We are free to plant churches and we're free to sit next to people that we would never sit next to. We're free to not live life for ourselves. We're free to lift our gaze from staring at our belly button and look around and give our lives away for the glory of God and the joy of our souls. We are free. A few application points and then we're done. Unbeliever. Remember that quote I read from Bloomberg, that article? Is that your logic? It was my logic before I understood the gospel. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm better than this knucklehead next to me in chemistry class. Here's the question, if you're going with that logic. 
how good is good enough? Bloomberg was proud of himself because he was giving $50 million of his own money to a political cause. And so he thought that meant that he does not pass go. He does not collect $200. But when he stands before God that day, he's going right in, no questions asked. Well, here's my question to Mr. Bloomberg, and here's my question to you. When did enough become enough? I mean, was it, did he get there when it was $20 million? Or was $15 million enough? Was $10 million enough for the political cause? Or was, was just five? And since most of us aren't rolling in that type of, we're not in that tax bracket, let's just take the money out of it. When is enough goodness enough, right? What qualifies you? Friends, Heed well the message of the Old Testament. Heed well the message of Paul in Ephesians and and Romans 8. There's nothing you can do. Your greatest need is not an improved life, but life in Christ. You cannot save yourself. There are no good people. There are wicked people and redeemed people. And your only hope is Christ's work, not yours. And as I mentioned a moment ago, friends, if you sense that, if you're aware that that is the way you have lived life, if you're aware that that's where your hope is, friends, I believe that God in his kindness is even giving you right now faith to turn away from yourself and turn in trust to Jesus. Do it even now. You don't need a a, a prayer to recite. You don't need a card to fill out. You don't need magic words. You need to look away from yourself and to Jesus. That's it. Right now, look away. Trust him and say, Christ, I trust you. You alone have done what I needed to stand before a holy and righteous God. Believer, my challenge to you, to me, is what does this look like when the rubber meets the road in our lives? To be justified, to be made righteous, to live a life grounded in this good news. Maybe you're a young mother and remembering this truth and standing on this truth frees you from the prison of comparing yourself to the other mother who seems to have like the perfect diet. And you know, she's posting on Facebook that she just got back from the gym at 5.30 in the morning to make her kids a gluten-free breakfast, right? (laughs) And you're just like, oh, like I can't keep up with it. I mean, I'm feeding my kids Twinkies for breakfast. I haven't read my Bible in three days. And my kids running around naked at three in the afternoon with a wet diaper. I'm a failure. If you're in Christ, you're not a failure You've been redeemed and you're in process. So look away from Facebook Supermom and look to Jesus. Maybe you're a, a young soldier and you're driven by that next, like, Beanock board. Yeah, you're driven by that next board, man. And you're going to go and you're going to get your sergeant stripes and you're going to be squared away and you're going to do your thing and you're going to get your EIB. 
And man, I, I know that world. You can be so consumed with a badge. Listen to me, young lieutenant, just out of school. You don't even know which way's up. You can barely open up a compass. Listen to me. You are not defined by a ranger tab. You're not defined by a badge on your chest. If you are in Christ, you are free to make it not about yourself and your accomplishments, but about Christ and what he has done for you to free you now to live life, giving yourself away for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. Maybe you're a young father and your kid's athletic or academic performance has become a subconscious referendum on you. Look here, Dad, you weren't that good in Little League, and neither is your kid. (laughs) So free yourself, free yourself from making your job or your neighborhood or your car or your kid's ability to hit a curveball the thing that justifies you. And yeah, work on him, throw him the curve. Teach him a lesson, play catch with him, read the Bible, give him a good education, do all that stuff, but don't base your worth on that thing. Friends, look to Christ and be justified and be free to give your life away for the sake of the glory of of God and the joy of all peoples. Listen now as I end with this quote from this dude named Peter Kreft, Catholic theologian. Lots that he has written that I would disagree with. So a couple caveats here. Anything that Spurgeon has written, read. (laughs) Anything that Machen has written, read. Can't say the same about my boy Petey here. But he does have a quote here that I think is so beautiful. And I think it's a beautiful picture of the consequence of being right with God. Listen to this. Now suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. And friends, they are, right? They are. That's the witness of the Bible. Now suppose both hell and death were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, that you can have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire. Heaven, eternal joy. And the only thing I wish Peter would have put in there is that ultimately we're not going for heaven. We're going for Jesus because heaven is glorious because Jesus is there. Right? So let's just edit that, all right? Let's just take editorial license and say that you can have free for the asking your whole heart's crazy deepest desire. Jesus. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed Jesus? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less a scratch on a penny. Friends, to be justified not by our own meager 
works, but to be justified and to be right with God because of what Jesus has done on the cross is to peer into eternity and to come back into this world fearless and singing, giving our lives away for the glory of God. Friends, look to Jesus even now and be fearless and sing. Because he alone is worthy. Let's pray. Father, I pray now for your grace to come and to for those that are in this room that are already trusting in Christ for you to wipe away the fog that so easily accumulates in the valleys of our life and let us see afresh the glorious good news of Jesus' life Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. And let it push us outside of ourselves and let it free us to give our lives away. Lord, for my friends in this room that came in not trusting in Christ, Lord, I'm not trying to cause them to reach down deep inside and to muster anything in them. I'm I'm pleading with you. I remember one time reading that Spurgeon prayed something along the lines that his hope isn't in the will of a man to return to Christ, but his hope is that their master will lay hold of them and say, you are mine, you shall be mine. I claim you for myself. Lord, our hope comes from the freeness of your grace, not from the strength of our will. So God, I plead with you to give eyes to see. And that my friend that's in this room would look away from themselves to Jesus and be saved and be justified and be reconciled and now be free to pursue joy by giving their lives away for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would do this for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, and for the salvation of unbelievers. In Christ's name, amen.